Good morning, everybody. Hello. Let me, um, let me pray again, and uh, then we will get started. Lord, um, we're thankful for your word. Um, we're thankful for this time that you've given us to hear it, to read it, to digest it, to understand it. God, it's a, it's a light to our path. It's sharp. Um, it creates, it destroys, it heals, restores. I pray that we would all kind of come under your word, and uh, you would change us, you would shape us, um, you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, and ask that, um, that you would guard my lips and my meditations and words would be pleasing, and that we would all um, have open hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are picking up where we left off last week. We are in Luke chapter 20. Um, um, before we read the passage, though, I just want to give a little bit of an intro to kind of set us on a path. Um, we're talking today about authority. Um, and authority is, uh, it's kind of a touchy subject in our world or in our worlds, or can be, um, when claims of authority are made on us, we often balk or resist, um, Authority often can feel like it's imposed, like it's forced in a way that doesn't make sense or fit. Um, this is kind of behind, uh, you know, who's, who's ever had to, to follow or been confronted with like a dumb rule, a really stupid rule, right? Everybody, thank you, yes. Um, so uh, when we were, lived in Colorado, um, there's this beautiful place called Red Rocks. It's these natural rock formations. Uh, you can go there, they have concerts there, but you can go there and hike around. Um, but all over Red Rocks, there are all these signs that say, you're not allowed to climb on the rocks. Um, and this, to me, was just, just disgusting, just despicable. Because when you see, I mean, you know, what the boy in me, at least, when you see a bunch of huge rock formations with tunnels and, you know, it's, it's begging you to climb them. Um, there's something intrinsic to the rockness of those rocks that calls out to everyone with a soul and says, climb me. And yet, the owners of these rocks have decided that they don't want to get sued because someone falls off the rocks and, you know, like it would be their fault. So they put all these signs up and say, don't climb the rocks. All right, it's a, kind of a dumb rule, right? Um, like, we react to that, right? We don't like that. That's often... Um, behind our resistance to authority is, is not just our sin and rebellion, although it is that, but it's, we've often encountered bad authorities. We've encountered bad rules, um, and so we resist, right? Authority can come to us in the form of hypocrisy, right? Authorities who, who you look at them and they don't seem any more virtuous or competent than we maybe feel ourselves to be, right or wrong. Um, and we belong to a church tradition and a nation that took shape in the form of a kind of rejection of the existing authorities that had become corrupt or unfit in some way or another, right? Whether that's, you know, the Protestant Reformation with the kind of late medieval Roman Catholic Church or the British, the British crown kind of around the colonial time, right? That's our, that's our history. That's, our, that's where we got our start, right? Um, now, regardless of the justification of those movements, um, we have this in our DNA, this impulse to kind of reject or cast off unworthy authority, resist it. But the problem comes up when we give, um, when we give up all quest for proper authority because of that. 
right? When every man just simply does what is right in his own eyes. That makes it hard to submit to God's authority on God's terms, um, but even more so, it makes it hard to accept the other necessary sub-authorities um, in our lives, whether that's parents or government, cultural traditions, church traditions. Um, what we're left with is just an increasingly kind of fragmented, separated society and world, increasingly fragmented persons. We're drifting, we're freed from the bad authorities, but we're not tethered to any good authorities. And as a group of people, as a church, as a community, as a nation, we need shared standards, shared authorities in order for us to come together and unite. All right, if everybody's kind of doing their own thing, there's no unity. Um, but what could that look like? What could that possibly be, that, that highest standard, um, when often our highest standard, if, we, if it really comes down to it in the way that we act, it's kind of what, what works for me, or what can you prove to me? So today, we're looking at the issue of Jesus's authority and his opponents who reject his authority. And this question is critical, um, this question of authority, in Luke's gospel, um, when Jesus' ministry begins, he starts with a demonstration of his authority over spiritual powers, over the demons. And the, the crowd, amazed at him casting out this demon, is basically his first miracle. They say, what is this word? With authority and power, he commands unclean spirits. And this question of authority, that of Jesus, and of the ones that Jesus puts in place under him as sub-authorities over people, over his world, that's going to lead us to see that Jesus isn't, he is not just in charge by force of power, by just sheer might, right? Christ, um, as we'll see as the cornerstone, means that his authority is as inescapable as the air that we breathe or the ground that we walk on. Um, his authority, his rule, aren't just over one specific nation or, or the church as kind of just this little religious nonprofit here. His authority is, it's woven into the fabric of the entire universe. And I'm hoping that we can see that today and what that might mean for how we live and how we think. So before we start exploring that, let's read the passage that's going to kind of kick us off in the right direction. And that's again, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seats around you probably. You can keep it if you don't own a Bible. Um, if you can turn there, if you'd like, and I will read it. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, 
What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the question the authorities ask Jesus is basically, who do you think that you are? Who do you think you are? That's the question they ask. Jesus, you know, we saw last week, he rides into Jerusalem as the messianic king. He's been traveling around Israel, playing the part of the ultimate prophet. He's engaged in this hostile takeover of the temple, claiming the priesthood and even the identity of the God whose home was the temple. And not only is he making the highest possible claims for himself, he's displacing and he's challenging the religious leader's own place. And we know from the rest of Luke's gospel, as we've seen how much they loved the places of status and the places of privilege. And so here, this is the first of several attempts after Jesus comes to Jerusalem uh, by the leaders to trap Jesus um, and basically establish grounds for them to execute him, to kill him, to bring a charge against him. And so they ask where his authority comes from. If he says heaven, they might be able to work on a blasphemy charge. Um, If he says from man, then they can just lead the people to dismiss him. Oh, he's just sensed another guy. So Jesus doesn't directly answer their question because they're not asking in good faith and because he's really already answered their question over and over and over through his ministry and just recently by taking over the temple and basically saying, this is my house. So instead of answering their question, he, he cleverly puts them in a position where they have to either accept his authority or put their own lives at risk. He asks, where was the authority of John's baptism from? If you remember at John's baptism, we saw the supernatural revelation of Jesus' authority. The Spirit descended on Jesus. The Father's voice audibly from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. So if John's authority is good, so is Jesus's. And the people all accepted John, all all the people that were around as the Pharisees are grilling Jesus. Um, But the religious leadership had rejected John and rejected Jesus. So it's, it's almost a comedic scene. Um, you know, Jesus asks this simple question, and then they say, uh, one second, and then they huddle together, and they're like, oh, we're in a pickle now. You know, what do we say? Um, if they say from heaven, they have to accept Jesus. If they say from man, then they'll be guilty of opposing John, who everybody thought was a true prophet. And if you oppose a true prophet, the, the penalty is stoning. So their lives are at risk with their answer here. So Jesus basically forces them into the hypocrisy of pretended ignorance. They don't, they don't accept his authority, but they say, we don't know. So Jesus says, okay, then I'm not going to answer your question either. <laughs> We're done here. Um, but they have rejected his authority. Um, and, and then in response to their attempt to really leave Jesus exposed, Jesus flips it around on them and he exposes their true motives. Um, and he prophesies their coming action and their coming removal from office. And so we get to this parable 
of the vineyard. The parable is probably Jesus' most straightforward of his parables, and the leadership understands immediately what he means because they try to kill him right away. In verse 19, we didn't read it, but as soon as he tells it, they try to lay their hands on him to kill him. Um, They know that he spoke it against them. And in this parable, um, God is the owner of the vineyard. And this this image of the vineyard has a long um, history in the Old Testament of representing, being a symbol of God's people. Um, The most important prophetic background is in Isaiah chapter 5. Um, You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to turn there and just read um, this tragic, uh, really tragic love song um, that God speaks through Isaiah to his people, to Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds for they, that, they rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, outcry. So Isaiah here, he's bringing a a covenant lawsuit against Israel. Um, God rescued you from slavery. He brought you into a good land. He provided you everything you needed and more. And he looked for fruit, the fruits of repentance and holiness. But he only found wild fruit, bitter, sour, tasteless grapes that weren't fit for winemaking or anything else. Um, this is the picture I got in my mind uh, there was, um, if, you, if you try to get like uh, out, of, out of season fruit from like Ray's, and you know how like out of season fruit that's mass produced, it just kind of tastes like cold water with like a hint of grape, you know? That's, you know, that's what we're talking about here. It's, it's not, I don't even want to eat it like when it's that bad. Um, all right, this, the fruit, there was no fruit, or whatever fruit there was, was worthless. Not worth, not worth eating, not worth making wine out of. Um, in, in Isaiah's song uh, that, he sa- that he sings here, or he prophesies here, the end of it is the desolation of the vineyard. And this is a reference to Israel and Judah's exile from the land. But in Jesus' parable, the destruction comes not for the vineyard itself, but for the rebellious stewards. And the parable goes on to tell the tragedy of God repeatedly sending prophets to spur them on to repentance, to cultivate these fruits of holiness and justice, righteousness. Prophets like Isaiah himself. But the stewards beat, they turn away the servants one at a time. Um, Israel's prophets through history, they were repeatedly driven away, killed by the stubborn and evil religious and political leadership. Finally, the vineyard owner makes one last attempt to move them and to change their ways. He says, I will send my beloved son 
perhaps they will respect him. And notice, notice, this is a harsh parable, right? But notice the mercy of God, the mercy of the Lord of the vineyard, right? He sent servant after servant in his name, and they keep returning bruised and shamed over and over and over again. But he's patient. Um, and this is, I think, the necessary context when we think of the wrath of God, right? The wrath of God is not God kind of just flying off the handle at any little slight um, He's not reactive. He's not unpredictable. He's not like a, a quick-tempered person that just loses it at any moment. Or he's patient. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger. And finally, he says, let me send them my son, right, my only son, whom I love. They'll listen to him. And this, um, if you catch it, this echoes not just God's declaration over Jesus at the baptism where he says, this is my beloved son, but the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son. This is the son of the promised, nearly sacrificed, this symbol of Abraham's proven faith. And it points, points forward, obviously, to the sacrifice of God himself for his people. And so Jesus, he comes to his own people um, to show them what it means to live as a faithful Israelite, to plead with them to turn from their sin, their self-destruction, and receive the kingdom of peace. But where he offers reconciliation, the stewards of the vineyard, the leaders of Israel, they only see an opportunity. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. Um, they won't have the authority of the vineyard owner or of his son. They want it for themselves. And we kind of know the story, right? This is ultimately part of God's plan. Jesus lays down his life for his people um, in a mystery that his disciples They'll go on to write about and explain more in depth, but that they don't get until after the resurrection. Jesus breaks this cycle by laying his own life down. Um, this cycle of sin and death, he deals with it at its source, takes it on himself, absorbs it himself, triumphs over it himself. And remember, remember from last week, the tears of Jesus. He's weeping, looking at Jerusalem, and he says, if only they knew what made for peace. But their persistence in opposing Jesus and opposing Jesus' authority that he's ridden into Jerusalem to make very clear ultimately brings judgment. There's, there is a refuge from judgment being united with Jesus himself, covered by Jesus' blood. But these stewards, these tenants, will not have it. And so they are destroyed by the owner, owner of the vineyard. And this doesn't you may think like, oh man, like I guess God finally got fed up, you know, one too many times. But that's not, that's not quite how it is. This doesn't undermine the infinite mercy of God. Because to ask for mercy for those who have been shown the path of mercy and refuse it is to ask for the world to be reconciled to God through a means other than Jesus. Right? Let me say that again. If, if you ask for mercy for those who don't want anything to do with mercy, what you're asking for is for there to be another way. Can I have a different option? Jesus, that's fine, but is there another way? All right. That's, that's an impossibility. There is no other place for forgiveness. And so, as Jesus ends his parable, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
So here, the existing ruling class is removed from office. Authority is, is given to those who humbly acknowledge the ultimate authority, who acknowledge the authority of the son and the vineyard owner. And here, um, because this parable is obviously highly allegorical, uh, the others that he mentions, first and foremost, are the Jewish apostles, right? the 12 disciples. After Jesus ascends to heaven, Jesus reigns in heaven, and his apostles are sent his spirit. And they form now a living temple of Jew and Gentile in the church. And that's why, um, if you ever wondered, uh, reading the book of Acts, that's why it's so important for there to be 12 apostles. Um, right? Judas betrays Jesus and he dies. And then the disciples get together and they, they draw straws, cast lots, because they have to replace him. You might be thinking, like, well, it's fine. Like, there's a lot of other people. Eleven, it's a fine number. Um, no, but the church is the place of God's temple, his vineyard. But they need to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? God's people are under new management. That's, that's what that means. Um, and in the book of Acts, all of Israel uh, will be provoked to jealousy. They'll be invited, just like the bitter older brother of the prodigal son story, to come to the party to receive Jesus as Lord by the new tenants, the new tenants of the vineyard. And so in response to this parable, the people are shocked by the whole sequence, um, whether it's the, the murderous hearts of the tenants, uh, the destruction, removal of the religious leadership, and even the nation and the temple themselves being transferred to the ownership of others, they say, no, surely not. There's no way, there's no way. But Jesus responds with a citation and a claim for himself that is um, infinite and, I think, mind-blowing. Right? It's a claim to be the foundation and the standard, the authority for everything. He says, he looks directly at them. I pictured like the Western, like, ooh, and he like looks them in the eye. He says, what's, this, what's written here then? Um, he says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So I want to I expand on this a little bit, because this idea of Christ as the rock, as the cornerstone, it brings together so much of what Scripture tells us about who Jesus is and how he relates to the world. It brings together these concepts of authority and of unity that you know, I was kind of talking about at the beginning, bringing together everything to be evaluated, to be judged, and to be built properly on Jesus Christ. So uh, this citation is a quote from Psalm 118. Um, just in the last chapter, the people were singing part of this psalm uh, when they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. And that psalm, it tells of the story of God's steadfast love, saving his people from their enemies, rescuing the suffering servant, and bringing this great reversal and elevation of the stone that's rejected to become the cornerstone of this thing that God is doing, that he's making, that he's building. Jesus speaks then of the judgment that comes with this stone. It's the stone that you can't get around. It breaks to pieces anything that won't be built on it. It trips up anyone that tries to walk around it. It crushes everyone that it falls on. There's a lot of Old Testament connections here, um, but one of the most important ones is this vision in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, that speaks of 
a future kingdom that will arise, future to Daniel, smashing all earthly kingdoms to pieces and filling the world forever, for eternity. It's, it's the worldwide kingdom and empire of Jesus Christ. So we have this, this image of a stone, but it's used in different ways, um, as a foundation to build on, as something that shatters and breaks things, right? It's like a diamond that, um, you know, sort of like rock, paper, scissors. It's like a diamond that beats all other materials, all other rocks. It sets the standard for every other stone. It measures, it judges, um, it encompasses everything. It's the cornerstone. Now, I don't know how many stonemasons we have in the room. Um, if we have any, I hope not, because I'm about to explain to you what a cornerstone is, and I don't know if I'll get it quite right, but a cornerstone um, was a stone, uh, we don't really use them anymore, from what I've been told, or what I read on the internet. Um, we don't really use them anymore in current construction, but in ancient building construction, um, this cornerstone was placed at the corner, um, I'll make a corner here, the corner base, wait, the corner base of a building <laughs> um, where the two walls meet. Right? It was the first stone that was laid, and then it then dictated the placement of all future stones and the positioning of all future stones. Um, it sat at the corner of the building, and it held the weight and the direction of the two walls at their meeting. And so if the cornerstone was solid and well-placed, it made a great building. Um, if it was ill-fitting or if it was off, then the whole building would be weird or, or unstable or poorly built. Um, and if any stones didn't fit with the direction set by this first cornerstone, those would be put aside or maybe you wait and put them in different places. And so this is obviously the irony of the rejection of G the Jesus cornerstone. Because he'll, be going, he'll go from being the rejected stone to being the pivotal, central, foundational stone that evaluates and judges all the other stones in the building. And it supports all the other stones in the building. The builders are going to look around, and there's no stone that works, and then they'll see the cornerstone and say, oh, perfect, that's it. That's it. So the bigger picture that this connects to, and this is, this is going to maybe get a little abstract at first, but I hope to, I hope to make it make sense. Um, all things are united in and founded on Jesus Christ. Right? The rejected one is the necessary and essential foundational one. Right? Everything takes its cue from Christ. He sets everything else in its right place. He's the standard for everything. And this is not just about religion. This isn't just about kind of religious standards or spiritual matters. Unless we understand religion as ancient people would have and as I would argue we should still today, that God is at the center of everything and that proper worship is the foundation for everything. There are several New Testament passages that expand on this huge, grand vision about the centrality of Jesus to the universe. We're going to look at a couple of them. First one is in Colossians 1. I'll read it. You can turn there if you'd like. But in Colossians 1, Paul writes this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So you can't, there's a lot of alls in that statement, right, in those verses. Everything, all, all, everything. Right, he's the creator and, forgive me, the holder togetherer of everything. He's the foundation and the source under, and he's the head over. And Paul goes on, he's going to make a more specific application because he's addressing some weird beliefs and philosophies and practices in, in the church in Colossae. And he's going to go on to say in chapter 2 that Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all truth, or you maybe heard the statement, all truth is God's truth. All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge traces back to its source in Jesus. So every sphere of human existence is united in Christ. Right? Nations, families, communities, jobs, that they're all under the obligation to be united under his authority, to be built on his foundation. Right? This, this is happening and it will happen. Um, and this, this creates the kind of unity that we're looking for as a people or in our work or in our thought, um, connecting these different parts of our lives that often seem fragmented or disconnected. Right? Because unity and authority, they go hand in glove. Right? There's no unity without authority um, because without authority, there's no standard to, to tell us how we should live together, what's right and wrong. Right? Many of you have been perhaps in a room full of toddlers where there's only might makes right. There's no unity there. Right? It's chaos. There's no authority. There's no unity. They're all fighting for the toys. And so in opposition to this Jesus-based unity and authority, false unities, counterfeit unities are everywhere, right? The Tower of Babel is sort of the, the big biblical example of this monstrous counterfeit unity. And it's a warning to all similar attempts to bring everything under one other than Jesus, right? There are other kinds of attempts to kind of bring this unity um, apart from Jesus' authority, right? You, um, I, was the, I was listening to some old school rock. For me, that's, you know, when I was growing up, 90s and early 2000s. But I heard this, I, I, this cover of John Lennon's song, Imagine, came on. And you guys know this song, maybe. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, only above us, only sky. Um, imagine there's no country, no religion, nothing to kill or die for. Um, imagine all the people living for today. So it's this kind of kumbaya sort of unity, um, which there's not really any substance to it, right? Where there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no authority. It's just everybody kind of, it'll work out, you know? <laughs> like, this is a, kind of a good vibes unity, right? Or bong rip unity. Like, there's nothing there. Um, which, if you were here when Tim Cole told that story about John Lennon, apparently maybe he got baptized at the end of his life. I don't know, in Japan? It's possible. But when he wrote the song, he was not baptized. Um, but that type of unity, that doesn't, do, that doesn't exist. That's a counterfeit, right? Um, that's kind of our version today, like, oh, let's just love everybody, unity. There's no authority. There's no standard there. Um, every, every evil world empire in history it manifests this quest for unity apart from Jesus as they kind of gobble up other nations and try to be the, the world empire, right? 
Um, today, artificial intelligence um, is in many ways an attempt at this kind of Christless unity. Right? We can account for all the data. We can know everything. And then once we know everything, then it, we can, it'll tell us what we can do and what we should do. Right? That's kind of the goal of AI, or at least in some manifestations of it. A lot of big businesses, they, on a smaller level, show this like, quest for governing everything, all-encompassing unity, right? destroy competition, and absorb everything. Right? Amazon wants to be the only website that you ever go to. So you kind of get the picture. Um, our systems, our lifestyles, our businesses, governments, they all threaten to be the Christ, to be the point at which everything comes together, the ultimate authority, the ultimate governing foundation, right? Displacing him as this cornerstone. But when we read in scripture, Jesus is the measure of all these authorities and he's above all these authorities and he puts all these authorities in their right place. And this, was, um, this is a careful balance that the early church tried to strike with political power, especially um, in the early centuries. Christians were never revolutionaries when it came to the earthly authorities, but they were very much relativizers. And by that, what, by that I mean that in their words and their actions, they lived out the truth that all the earthly authority and power was not the highest. It was real, but it was not the highest. Jesus was Lord of Lords, not Caesar. And so then, as today, there, there might be some kind of separation of church and state, depending on how you define that, but there's never any separation of Christ and state. The church always called the state to submit to Christ and to his authority, because the, church, or the state is not the cornerstone. And this leads to what the church is and how we understand ourselves as the church. Um, Listen to how the apostles, Paul and Peter, they took and elaborated on this central image of, of Christ the rock, Christ the cornerstone, in their vision for what the church was and how the church related to the world. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, Through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in the Lord. And then in 1 Peter, Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church, we are the building built on Christ, the cornerstone, the one who holds all things together. We are the temple. We are where things are built to be a home of God. And we're priests. We're priests to the world. Right? The church is meant to show what it looks like to be properly related to Jesus, to this cornerstone, and to show what it looks like to relate every area of our life to Christ, to the cornerstone. Right? This, was, this was Israel's calling and vocation. Right? They were supposed to speak truth. They were supposed to be a place of justice and of healing, and everybody was supposed to run to Israel because it was so attractive, because it made sense of everything. Right? Abraham was blessed so that he would bless all the nations. 
And that calling is carried out by Jesus. He's faithful. And by his brothers and sisters in the church as we build on the foundation of Christ. Is that, is that a part of how we see ourselves? All right, that's not a prideful thing. I mean, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. That's just what the church is. Um, we're built on Christ. It's his church and it's his kingdom, but this is our calling. We're supposed to show our community, our world, how things all come together in Jesus. To show what it looks like to build lives on Jesus, to invite others to join into that. How every aspect of human existence fits and can be built on Jesus. Right? We bring God's presence to the world. There's no, there's no question, there's no task, there's no part of creation or anyone's life that isn't brought into this. Um, there's, a, there's a famous quote by, um, he's, a, he's a Dutch prime minister in the 19th century, but he said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right? There's no area that, well, the, you know, the church or Christian faith, is, it's not relevant there. Right? I think sometimes we can undermine that, you know, when we kind of subtly indicate, like, if you're a really strong Christian, then you're a missionary, right? The real ones who are totally sold out go on, do church work. I like church work. It's great. Missions work is great. But we need Christians involved in carpentry and in government and in every area of human life to show how it unites to Christ, right? If you work in a job, as you, whatever your job is, that you're sitting here and you go to work at from your nine to five the rest of the week. You are doing the Lord's work by demonstrating what it looks like to connect that meaningful, important work to Christ. Because he's the center of everything, right? This, his, this vision is as big as the universe and as small as the individual person. He's the cornerstone for our jobs, but he's the cornerstone for each one of us. He's, he's that missing, that foundational piece Maybe you came here this morning and you feel like just something's missing. Like there's something, there's something that's just not right. That's not there. You know, when you go through a difficult time, I, you know, times where I've, like things have not been going well, I almost have a physical sensation of like the floor shaking, like the foundation isn't stable. Right? Is that, is that how you feel maybe? Don't, don't trip over the cornerstone. Don't run from the stone. You can't get around it. You can't. Build on anything else that will be lasting. So what's your cornerstone? Who, has, who or what has authority in your life? What's that foundational piece that then sets all the other stones in place that bears the weight of your life? Right, maybe your cornerstone is um, family or safety or comfort, wealth, stability, um, America, traditional values. Those are all great things, but they won't bear the load of your life. They can't be the cornerstone. It'll crumble, it'll, it'll totter, it'll fall to the ground. Everything will just be off, something will be missing. And maybe for those of you who would readily say like, well, yeah, Jesus is my cornerstone. What is it that shakes your world? Um, not to make you feel ashamed per se, but like, what is it that shakes your world when, when this event happens or you lose this or lose your job or you know, whatever it is? Like, what sets your building swaying? That's an, that's an opportunity to return to Christ as a cornerstone. Right? So ask yourself, what holds your world together? 
What holds your family together? And what would it look like to make Jesus that foundation? The before Jesus is set in place as this cornerstone, before he goes down into death and then up into heaven, filling the universe with his rule, um, he'll be rejected. This is what the disciples don't understand, as I said, before the resurrection. Um, the reconciliation, forgiveness, healing, is through the path of his suffering and death. And this is what Luke's story is driving towards. And now the pace is picking up because after Jesus says and does just about anything, everybody wants to kill him. Right? This is the love of God. He comes to the world to people insistent on building on anything and everything but Jesus. Right? We build our own buildings. We want to be our own authorities. And we make a big mess. We hurt ourselves and we hurt others when we do that. But Jesus says, I will die for that. I will die for you, for this world. I will build my kingdom in such a way that traitors and rebels are welcome to be a part of it. The one who has all authority, this, this loved and loving son, makes us alive through his rejection and his death. And that's the offer to each of us today. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for you sending your son to die for us. Lord, to establish the foundation of our lives, not by, not by first rejecting us and looking for better people, but by forgiving us and inviting us into your, into your temple, to your people. God, I pray that as we go out, we would, we would look for how to connect all these different pieces of our lives to you at the center. God, I ask that you would be honored and glorified in each of our lives, that we would look to you um, as our ultimate authority, um, that we would build our lives upon you as our cornerstone. In Jesus' name.